1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Hey, uh, my, my family came this time, which is awesome. So now my kids think I'm just like a rock star. Uh, so appreciate that. This is so good to, to be with you. I think this is the fourth time. You were away on sabbatical, so you missed number three. Uh, so super excited to be here with you. Uh, this is just a gift to, to come across the bridge uh, from our little realm of the world in Sherwood Park and, and join in with what's happening over here. Uh, I love it. It's always a gift, and so this is fun for my family to be here. One of my kids is downstairs. He's my social butterfly. Uh, the other two are here because they just love to hear dad preach all the time, so this is just a gift. Uh, hey, one of the things that, that I haven't told you about myself that I'll share with you now this morning that's going to kind of set the framework for our conversation is I'm a sucker uh, for really good customer service. So that's just like at my core, uh, I love when I'm treated really, really kind of above and beyond by organizations or or shops or businesses those sort of things when when that happens there's just something that happens with inside of me that just lights up and then i love to tell other people about organizations and businesses and places like that to kind of fan into flame the gift of these special little places in the world i love it maybe you can relate uh, when I deal with, with companies on the flip side, though, the opposite, that kind of reflect company first, uh, you know, client second, uh, I really struggle. I, I really have a hard time uh, in those environments. Now, I've been affectionately referred to, at least I think it's affection that, that gives me this name, uh, but I've been affectionately given the nickname, Bring It Back Brody, uh, and, and this is the reason why. If something has a warranty attached to it, it's uh, almost a guarantee that I will test drive that warranty at some point or another now nine times out of ten after test driving said warranty I end up with a deepened appreciation for the company that I've dealt with but one out of ten times I left I leave feeling pretty upset if I'm totally honest and I wonder if any of you have ever had to deal with an organization that put the needs and the wants of the organization above the people that it was there to ultimately serve. Or maybe it was a business that clearly did not strive to put the customers first. Uh, these are often most extremely uh, frustrating experiences, aren't they? Now, I'm, I know I'm guilty of this as a dad all the time, right? I know I find myself uh, oftentimes, or maybe it's more so my wife Jody who finds me guilty of prioritizing the law of our house over relationship with our kids. You know, maybe you relate when you find yourself way too deep down a rabbit trail of control when it it just really becomes about your sense of control and not about the relationship with the kids where I find myself at least majoring on all the minors and, and, and subsequently losing control of all the majors at the same time. And you know that you've been guilty of this as well if you've ever spoken words like this. It doesn't matter it's the principle right now I've worked in environments like this Uh, they're really hard Uh, it was really hard working in an environment like this see I'm a firm believer that that policy in an institution exists to serve the people and not the other way around and when you're in a setting where the people are forced to serve the policy often the outcome is the people become weary and tired and will leave now I wonder for how many of us we've ever felt a sense of, of this experience when it comes to our, our, uh, our personal experience with organized religion or more specifically with the church. See, I know I've had conversation with, with lots of people who, who this is the exact very thing that's turned them away from church or, or, or that church was just a place that, that seemed to be uh, all about its, its religion and its rules and its stuff more so than the people that it was there to ultimately serve. And so it's a hard question that, that each of us have to wrestle with at some point as members of a church, as part of a church. We have to ask, do I love my religion more than the people for whom the religion was given? So here's some signs that, that you know, might indicate that we're loving our religion more than the people. Something like this, a staunch aggressiveness to change in systems or even facilities. A feeling where it starts to rise up in in the back of us where we we just acknowledge this isn't the way that it's always been done and I'm not okay with it. Maybe it's a a desire for the church uh, to draw the line and say definitively and authoritatively what is right or wrong on certain or specific issues. Maybe it's a, a rising of frustration when you come to church and your seat's been taken by a newcomer who didn't realize that you've sat there for the last two decades. Now you guys don't have that problem, right? Because you've only been here for just over a year. It's not like you showed up here and sat and tried to sit in the same space as you used to in the rental. But, oh no, it's, that's exactly what you did, right? Or how about the, the unsettled stirring that happens inside when we believe that people are, are maybe misusing the stuff of the church? Whether that be shoes that are up on the chairs or, heaven forbid, using a hymnal as a hard surface to write notes on. Now, I I feel like I've been really blessed with the churches that I've been able to do youth ministry in. But I have a whole lot of friends uh, who've done youth ministry in places where the attitude was to keep the teenagers away from everything because all they ever do is break things, right? And those are just a few. But we know there's so many more, right? Right? And at its core, it's this desire to, to love our system and our structures of faith and religion more than the people for whom the religion was given. And so this morning, I want to focus in on a New Testament narrative, an experience that that Jesus himself had that that I think actually connects the dots of the meta-narrative of the whole Bible, okay? And it's Jesus' attempt at helping people understand both the interconnectedness of the Old Testament and the New Testament, as well as introducing this brand newness that he was bringing all together. And so in doing so, we're going to look at this story where Jesus had some pushback towards this very attitude amongst the religious elite of his time. Now, there's so many stories that we could pick to look at, uh, where Jesus stood toe-to-toe with, with those who were the religious elite, and where he called out their attitudes which, um, and their behaviors, which seemed to clearly point to their love of religion over their love of their people. And so this morning, we're just going to look at one, and from it, we're going we're gonna to see this radical shift that Jesus was bringing about, which would ultimately drive the religious elite to the point of demanding Jesus to be crucified. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to to have it open, okay? It'll be up on the screen. There's a real big Bible on the screen behind me. That's awesome too. But if you've got one, a paper copy, a digital copy, I love it when you're in it. So if you could go there, Uh, Matthew chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, And we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. So I'll give you just a sec to turn there. Some of you are going. That's great. Matthew 12, starting at verse 1. Here's what it says. At about that time, Jesus was walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry. So they began breaking off some heads of grain and eating them. But some Pharisees saw them do it and protested, look, your disciples are breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now pause there before we continue on just for a moment. Here we immediately start to see the rub. You see, wherever Jesus himself went, there was a crowd of people. And in each of these crowds, we have the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite, who were trying to trap and trip up Jesus in an attempt to separate Jesus from the crowds. So their their goal is to try and prove Jesus isn't who he says he is and try and separate Jesus from the hype that's following him. And so here Here they are in this moment, in the middle of this mob, watching and waiting, and then they shout out, Aha! The law is clear, Jesus. You can't work on the Sabbath. And your disciples, they just plucked grain and ate it. And that's work. And so you've broken the law. You're harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Now, the disciples, we know, they're not trying to work here, let alone executing a full-on harvest, right? Instead, they're hungry, and they're just attempting to eat something. And in fact, it was very customary at the time uh, for farmers to actually expect that travelers would do this, that as they traveled along the roadsides, they'd, they'd find some of the, the harvest was left for them to be able to pluck and eat that as they went. So they're hungry, and so they start breaking this off to eat. And so Jesus responds, verse three, Jesus said to them, haven't you read in the scriptures what David did when his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God and he and his companions broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. And haven't you read in the law of Moses that the priests on duty in the temple, that they may work on the Sabbath? Now, quick note. When the people of Jesus' day speak of the law or the law of Moses, what they're referring to is their ancient scriptures. At the time, they didn't have the Bible that we have as we know it, uh, since the New Testament itself hasn't even been written. They did have most, if not all, what we would refer to as the Old Testament. They didn't call it that, uh, but they would refer to it as the law and the prophets. And so what Jesus does is he decides to use their law to refute their argument about his disciples breaking the law law. It's brilliant. And so he points to two examples. The first being uh, David and some of his men who found themselves on the run from King Saul and his men as Saul was on this manhunt for David, attempting to kill David to save the throne for himself and his family. And so during this run, David and some of his men end up with Ahimelech the priest at the tabernacle. And it's there that they ask Ahimelech for something to eat. And what they're given is the showbread, the bread that was used in the temple sacrificial system and they eat it now think of it like this someone showing up here at your church and they root through the the cupboards to feed themselves on some of your maybe i don't know if you have gluten-free wafers or whatever you use for for communion and they drink gallons of the delicious welch's grape juice right now for some people this is just a no-no And so Jesus effectively saying, guys, you got to do what you got to do sometimes, right? And what say you to these examples? And then he points to Moses, the author of their law, which was his permission given to the priests who were on duty at the temple, given freedom to work on days like the Sabbath. And so what Jesus is trying to do here really simply is he's trying to show the religious elite that the Sabbath was made for the people Not the people made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, it existed to serve the people. The people, they didn't exist to serve the Sabbath. It was a day of rest given by God to the people to encourage them to be still and quiet and to recharge and reconnect and pause and breathe amidst the busyness and pace of life. But these Pharisees and and these Sadducees, they wanted to make it about control and power. It was legalism. And it had to look exactly the way that they expected it to. And in doing so, they've entirely missed the point altogether. You see, the Sabbath was made for man, not man made for the Sabbath. Jesus is trying to show all who are gathered and listening here that God is far more concerned with his people than he is with the Sabbath. And the rub between Jesus and the Pharisees was the fact that they truly loved their law more than they loved the people. We see them put this, they, they pull this same sort of stunt many times. Uh, one of these times was when Jesus heals this man who is lame uh, for 38 years. This man, he's, he's laid lame, begging at the pools of Bethesda. And Jesus speaks into this man. He says, stand up, take your mat and walk home. And he does, totally healed, transformed. And the Pharisees, they, they spot him walking and they accuse him of what? Working on the Sabbath. Because he's up walking, carrying his mat home fully aware that this is the same man who would have begged for years at the pools of Bethesda now has been transformed. It doesn't matter because he's breaking the law. And so Jesus, he goes even a little bit deeper and he throws one more bit of scripture their way to drive his point even further by looking at the words of Hosea, one of their ancient prophets. When he says this verse seven, but you would not have condemned my innocent disciples. If you knew the meaning of this scripture, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices, for the Son of Man is Lord over even the Sabbath. Now, this is kind of like the mic drop moment for Jesus, right? But here's the deal. If you're following along, not on the screens, and maybe you noticed on the screens, but you're in a Bible in front of you, you might have noticed if you were tracking, I jumped over one verse in this whole interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that was verse 6. Now, don't look there yet. Some of you are like, I want to see what he's going for. That don't, don't look there yet. I need to set the stage a little bit. I did this on purpose, okay? You really want to look right now, and I see some of you turning your heads down, so stop it. Just wait, okay? Be patient. I'm going to get you there. I did this on purpose because we need to prepare our, stop it. Some of you are like looking still right now. So just honestly, just trust me. It's going to be so much better if you wait. Because we need to prepare our hearts and our minds for the severity and intensity of what it is that Jesus is saying. You see, often when we read the words that are in the Bible today, we just, we do it quickly. And we don't understand the full context of what's going on, the broader picture. And so it's like, okay, Jesus said this. Great. Sounds good. Moving on. But but they lose some of their power and their pointedness completely because we don't understand the cultural significance behind them. That's verse 6 here. You see, the religious elite, they loved their laws. And central to their system and practice of law and power was one significant epicenter. A particular piece of of prominent realty, the place where all the people of Israel believed God dwelt, and where people came to reconcile themselves and their brokenness with the absolute holiness of God. It was the temple. For the people of Israel, this was the be all and end all, a sign of their nation, central to their religion, a place that was so sacred, so elite that only the best of the best, those who were near perfect in their holiness, could come near, a place that reminded people daily of their depravity due to their separation from what it stood for. The temple. And right in the middle of all this talk between Jesus and his disciples and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and and the context of them taking some food to eat because they were hungry with it, uh, Jesus drops a Jesus bomb that we simply can't miss. And so now look at verse six at what he says. He says this, I tell you, there is one who's here who is even greater than the temple now, again, we, we kind of just jump over these things and we think, okay, yeah, great. We know Jesus is greater than the temple. But, but this was really radical. This was a, a real defining moment in Jesus's ministry. To say what he just said, this is a big deal. And to every single person listening, even his disciples, immediately they would have thought, this is blasphemy. <laughs> well, hold on, Jesus. This is blasphemy. You see, there's absolutely nothing that's greater than the temple, Jesus. You see, in Jesus's day, if you threaten the temple, you threaten the nation because the temple is central to the nation. And here's the really crazy part about it all. The people loved their temple, but the temple was never God's idea to begin with. Did you know that? If you go all the way back to the beginning, the early story of Israel, you'll find that, that God's presence amongst the people it dwelt, and, and it eventually resided in the structure of a tent. We call it the tabernacle. After the people were, were freed from their captivity in Egypt, they built this tent for God, this tabernacle, and his spirit, it powerfully comes to inhabit it. Now, the tent was mobile. It wasn't confined to any one place. They were often picking it up, loading it up, and, and moving along towards the promised land with it. But it was this place where God's present dwelt, made known by his pill- pillar of, of smoke descending into it. And it wasn't until the time of David that we actually have the idea of a temple uh, starting to serve. And in 1 Chronicles 17, David is king and he asks God permission if he can build a temple. You see, all the gods of the time had a temple. Each one of them had a place where people could come and worship, where people who wanted to worship each of the different gods could come and do so. And so much like the people demanded of God that they wanted to have a king so they could be like all the other nations and and have a king, regardless of the fact that God was their king and wanted to be their only king, now David presents this idea that that God, the Yahweh God, should have a temple like all the other little g-gods. And if you jump into the story in 1 Chronicles, you actually see that God says to David, no. He says, no. He says, I don't, I don't want a temple. You see, God's actually really satisfied with his temporary digs. He's, he's content with the current setup because as readers who know the rest of the story, he knows that this is only going to be temporary anyway. But David insists And on the side, during kind of his rule, he he goes on to gather the materials for a temple and then hands them to his son Solomon to go on and build them when he's king. And it was this glorious temple indeed, one of the many temples actually that Solomon built. You see, if you know the story, you know that Solomon had many, many, many wives, most of which were from different religions. And we find in his story that Solomon actually built temples for each of them. And the one we know most about was the temple that he built for the God of his people, Yahweh. And so we find that God, he begrudgingly moves into the temple that Solomon built. He doesn't want to do it. And that temple, it ultimately becomes the epicenter of Israel's religious system right up until it was ransacked and destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And it was this moment in Israel's history that was absolutely devastating. See, their place of worship that that had come to signify their identity as a very people was now in ruin. The good news for them, though, was that they didn't have to lament for very long, as later it was the King Cyrus of Persia who allowed the temple to be rebuilt, and you find this all in the book of Ezra, if you want to read that later. But the problem was that this rebuilt temple was puny. It was nothing compared to the, to the grandeur and, and prominence that, that, that Solomon had built. It was a constant reminder to them of the way it always used to be, right? We used to have, we used to be, it used to be like this. And over the next 400 years after this, a series of Gentile rulers would build up and subsequently defile the second puny temple. And the cycle continues all the way up until 39 BC when King Herod took control of the temple. In doing so, he slaughtered many of the priests and defenders in the process, but he also kept the Roman soldiers from defiling the temple themselves. And in what was most likely an attempt to win the favor of this large group of people, the Israelites, Herod proposed this idea to renovate the temple from the year 20 to 19 BC. And the argument that he used to do so was the fact that the people of Israel deserved a better temple. And he reminded them of how puny their their new temple was and, and how pathetic it was compared to the first temple they had and that their God, he deserved a better temple But make no mistake, Herod's temple was all about him and his political power entirely. And so over the next few years, the groundwork took place and the finishing touches of Herod's temple would continue all the way up until 70 AD. But it became the greatest temple the people had ever seen, constructed right there at the center of Jerusalem. Now, I couldn't find a picture of this. Obviously, it's, it's not there anymore. But there is an artist who spent like 30 years of his life constructing a model. I think he's a Mormon guy. And you can find it if you just do a Google search later on Herod's Temple, a model of Herod's Temple. All of the pictures were bought by Shutterstock. And so I can't show you them without Shutterstock image all over it. It's just whatever. It's political. It's money. Uh, but go and look at them. It's, it's phenomenal. It's profound. I'll tell you just a little bit about it, but you can find the pictures later to get a sense for, for what it actually looks like. See, for the people, they were finally getting the temple they'd always dreamt of, or, or, or one that would put to shame all the other gods and their temples around them. And, and, and so for Herod, it was a chance to make his name really great. And, and his, his presence in no place was, was Herod's desire for grandeur and permanence more apparent than in the Jerusalem temple. So here's what Herod did. He took Solomon's temple structure that, and he enlarged it to a structure that was 325 meters wide by 500 meters long. Okay, the circumference around this whole area was nearly a mile. This immense 35-acre enclosure could accommodate 12 football fields, just so you start to get a sense of, of how big this is. And the southeast corner of this temple had a retaining wall that hung 15 stories above the ground that sloped into the Kidron Valley. This thing was huge. And the blocks that were used to construct this temple were enormous. And so we have Josephus, this ancient historian, reporting that that some were 40 cubits or approximately 60 feet in length. No block had ever been used in construction this size before. We read that parts of the arch measured 42 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet deep, and weighed over 1 million pounds. Now, keep in mind, this was before bulldozers and excavators, right? This was a temple that the people would be proud of. In Josephus, he spoke of it, he said it was this striking spectacle. The columns in the courtyard stood 40 feet tall, supporting the the cedar-paneled ceiling above. And again, Josephus records that the thickness of each column was such that it would take three men with outstretched arms touching one another to envelop it. And at the center of this whole temple courtyard was the sanctuary, which, as the ancient writers noted, was shaped like a lion. It was broader in the front, 50 meters wide, and narrower in the back, 30 meters. And it rose to a height of 50 meters. And it was this visual collage of gold and silver and crimson and purple, radiating the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain. And the figures Josephus gives for the blocks of stone in the sanctuary exceed even the size of those in the foundation. You see, Temple 3.0 was the real deal. And so when Jesus not only knocks the Pharisees' love of the law and the Sabbath, but then calls out the temple, saying that there's someone who's among them who's, who's greater than the temple, well, we understand a little more now why thems are fighting words, Right? And it wasn't the only time that Jesus was found to be doing this. If you jump into Mark's gospel in chapter 13, it's here that we find Jesus and disciples at at the temple that we've just described. So they're looking at this temple in awe of it all. And here's the interaction that's recorded. Verse 1. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at these impressive stones and walls. And Jesus replied, yes, look at these great buildings, but they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of one another. Again, huh? Uh, Whoa, pardon. What? What did you say, Jesus? I mean, this temple was literally built earthquake proof. It's impossible. These stones simply cannot be thrown down. They're millions of pounds in weight. And again, what you're saying, it's pure blasphemy, Jesus. I mean, this is our temple, Jesus. And Mark continues on. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across from the valley of the temple, and Peter, James and John, Andrew came up to him privately and asked him, "Tell us when this will happen. What sign will you show us that these things are about to be fulfilled?" Now they're asking in, in desperation. I mean, this, this simply can't be the case, Jesus. The, the temple, it's central to our faith and our practices. And if it comes down, Jesus, what's going to be left of us? And as a, just a little side note, there's this profound prophecy that, that Jesus has in this moment that, that we don't realize until we look at the history. But it was only 37 years after that moment, looking at the temple with his disciples, 37 years after that moment, that what Jesus said would happen, happened. In 70 AD, after this long war between the Jewish zealots and the Roman authorities, uh, 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 four Roman legions that were led by, by Titus, they besieged Jer- Jerusalem. They surrounded Jerusalem and they, they actually starved the people out until most of them were dead or, or near death. And then they came in and they burnt the temple to the ground. And as the temple burnt down... The gold and the silver ornamentation, it all got really hot and it melted and it seeped down in between all the cracks of these great stones. And so in their zeal for reward, the Roman soldiers actually took the temple apart stone by stone and threw them down into the valley below just as Jesus predicted so they could collect their gold and their silver. Profound. But here's the deal. Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand something really, really important. And that was that he himself had come to replace the temple. You see, in in the grand story of, of Scripture, we discover that Jesus came to start something entirely new. He didn't come to add to something that already had been. What he was starting was something totally different. And if you don't believe me or you wrestle with that, look no further than the Last Supper Jesus shared with his disciples. It's, it's a piece of scripture that undoubtedly you, you've probably read and heard read thousands of times, maybe hundreds, and yet maybe missed the significance of what it was that Jesus was actually saying. The context was that Jesus was with his disciples and they were to share this Passover meal together. And this was a celebration that was central to the Jewish people as they looked back on on God's final act of judgment over Pharaoh and their rescue and liberation as a nation. It commemorated the, the act of their spreading the blood of a lamb over their doorpost of their home so that God's judgment in the form of the angel of death would pass over their homes and keep their boys alive. It was a celebration that pointed to God's promise and their liberation and their establishment as a nation en route to the promised land and the final fulfillment of their destiny. Big party. And so yearly, the people of Israel would spend a week celebrating and remembering. And right in the middle of that great holiday, Jesus asks his disciples to find a room and prepare a Passover meal. And then we have Luke record the moment in chapter 22 of his gospel. He says this, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I've been eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, again, the disciples listening, they, they would have been like, pause. Hold on. What do you mean, Jesus? Its meaning is fulfilled. What are you talking about here? I mean, the meaning of this meal, it's pretty obvious. It was a reminder to God's provision, protection, and promise. We already know the meaning of this meal. Why is Jesus saying that the meaning of the meal is still yet to come? And then we see it in verse 19. He took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and he gave it to his disciples saying, this bread is my body, which is given for you. Do this, all of this in remembrance of me. And again, we pause there for a moment and we ask, Jesus, what are you doing? Why are you making this this sacred meal all about you? But just look at what Jesus says next. After supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and man. The new covenant, the new arrangement, the new agreement. An agreement which is confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. The new covenant. I mean, this is God's new arrangement, his new agreement, his new means of uniting heaven and earth, of bridging the gap between our brokenness and God's holiness. And it's all through the person and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus came to replace the temple. The temple, which was, was built in such a way as to keep the people from God and to keep God from the people, now we see it flipped upside down. You see, only the best could enter the temple, and even then, only on very special and specific occasions. But all that has changed, as we'll see, and continues to change. The author, John, who, who wrote his gospel, he, he began his gospel pointing to this profound reality when he said this. So the word became human and made his home among us. John says the word, God, became flesh, human. And what it literally says there was that God came and tabernacled among his people. So right there at the beginning of the story, John points to something that is very new. The people don't need to go to the tabernacle to meet with God anymore because the tabernacle has now come to meet with each and every one of them. It's profound. You see, there's no longer sacred spaces or sacred places. The sacred is a person. It's God's present among us. And then here's the real crazy part. After Jesus himself replaced the temple and its system with his new covenant agreement and did the saving and and redeeming work of giving his life up on the cross for us, he shifted the onus once more in that now the temple system, finished by his sacrifice and realized by his grace, now moves to us, the believers and followers of Jesus. And Paul would put it like this to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his Spirit. And to the Corinthians, urging them towards purity, Paul said much the same. Chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Paul's connecting all the dots and he's saying, your body, you as an individual are now the very place where God's presence dwells. God's presence has moved out of a building and inhabited the lives of his followers. We are now the place where people are to experience God's grace and forgiveness and life and promise. And so now back to where we started at the very beginning. At the start of the message, we talked about those who, you know, have walked away from the church or even faith entirely, and those who might be on the edge of doing so because they encountered or experienced a church that seemed to love its religion and rules and system and stuff more than it loved its people. If you're here today and you would identify in some way, yep, that's me, that's why I feel chapped or burned, that's why I left or I'm close to leaving— Please hear this from me on behalf of Rob and the team here of Point. This isn't how Jesus intended it to be. And I'm sorry. As a guy coming in from across the river, I'm sorry. And if that's your story, those are wounds that, that you don't deserve to have be there. And I know, I know Rob and his team, and I would love to have an opportunity to sit with you and to listen to your story and, and just know that that there are great churches out there. I know this is one of them, making great movements towards being people, being our people more like the person of Jesus, who are open to you finding a sense of belonging and community before you ascribe to a set of beliefs and statements of faith. And so if that's you, I, I would just encourage you, have an open heart disposition that says, maybe, maybe I'll explore, maybe I'll have a conversation, maybe I'll unpack some of those wounds. And for those of you on the, on the flip side who would identify as, as saying, you know what, I'm, I'm a little bit more guilty of being like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in these stories, of, of loving you know my, my rules and, and systems and structures of religion more than the people. I'm, I'm guilty of, of doing the church stuff and, and its order and structure and rules more than I, I've been invested and in, interested in loving the people. If that's you today, my invitation would be simply this. Would you, would you join Jesus in living out his, his reality, his desire for hospitality as, as the very people now who are carriers of God's presence and essence and, and goodness and grace to our world? Whatever it looks like for you, would you try to release some of the control and desire that, that, to hold things tight, close to you? The expectations that you might, you might put on the systems and structures and, and start to shift your hearts and minds to, to the brothers and sisters in this room of Jesus. And on top of that, those who are not yet in this room, but desperately needing to be in this room. I've, I've told you as a church this multiple times since I've come here, but reality is this is not and cannot be just church staff responsibility. This isn't on Rob and Micah and their team. It's not just on the volunteers who run the different programs, but, but each and every one of us have all been given that exact same spirit inside of us, and we're expected now to be the place where heaven and earth collide. You see, it's not a building, you, you knew that, right, like a year and a half ago, that it's not a building because you were meeting in the Elk Center or whatever it was that you were meeting at, right? And, and there's almost a disservice that happens when you got this and, and a caution that comes with it of, of like, okay, yeah, hold on. This is, this is insignificant. It's great. We love it. It's a gift to this community, absolutely. But the gift is not the, the mortar and the, the pillars and the wood and the carpet and the chairs. The gift is each one of you that are in this place. You are cross point not this place not this building you my friends are cross point it's not a building it's not a single service it's not a second service it's people through people like you that god's presence now now dwells and is experienced and god has replaced the sacred space with sacred people and our job then is to live into that great calling for his sake and for all of his glory let me pray god thank you uh, that you're bigger than our stuff, that you're bigger than the things that we get excited about, uh, that you have a passion and a desire for each and every one of us. And Lord, I just, I pray for for those of us in this room uh, that might be resonating and saying, you know what, I've, I feel like I've been hurt or let down by faith or religion or or the structure of church. And I just, I pray for your grace to, to just be in the hearts and minds of those who would resonate and say, yeah, that's me. And God, that your whispers would be, welcome here, come home. It's me that you're after, not, not a building, not a place like this. And so God, help us to, to, to look beyond maybe some of those pains, help us to unpack some of those pains if they exist, but help us to see you in the midst of it all and your, your heart for invitation, hospitality, love, and grace. And for those of us who um you know would identify that that maybe we are a little bit too interested in rules and structures and stuff and systems and i pray that you'd be softening our hearts and reminding us that that what matters is the person on my left and right and front and behind and the one up the street who hasn't yet been invited to this place that that's what you're after god and so would you give us that great grand vision and lead us to be a community that, that wants nothing more than to impact uh, the community of Beverly and beyond with your great love, your great hope, and your goodness, Jesus. And so empower us, motivate us, inspire us, and lead us for your sake and for your glory. And all God's people said, amen.
0: Well, thanks for listening to our podcast.